Comedy is about timing, son. Timing. You gotta get them, you gotta tell them. Okay, Work I... on your speed. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell, as always joined by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And uh, very, very stoked to introduce this week's guest. Uh, he is the co-director of MIT's graduate program in science writing, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and the author of three books, including The Panic Virus, The True Story of the Vaccine Autism Controversy, and I'm totally not even saying all the stuff you've been involved in, Seth. It's Seth Manukin. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, finally, we get to discuss the secret connection between vaccines and Twin Peaks. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, if you haven't yet, when you saw the episode description, do look up Seth on Wikipedia because it's it's quite a lot of adventures. So I, I got to ask, Seth, as uh, I mean, you, I, I know you've listened to the podcast, so you know these questions are coming. Uh, in between, you know, writing books and all the, the general ass kickery, how have you found time to watch Twin Peaks, listen to this podcast, and, yeah, and right. how are you feeling about it all? Uh, well, increasingly, I feel like, how do I have time to do my job and see my family in between watching and thinking about Twin Peaks? <laughs> um, it's been uh, a very consuming experience for me. Uh, I did not watch the first run as it aired. Um, uh, I, I was, it was a, it was a period of my life in which, uh, if something was popular, I did not want anything to do with it. So I was sort of too cool for Twin Peaks version one, which then I regretted when I eventually did see it. Um, but I have been really completely kind of allowed myself to get completely enveloped, um, and, and, and just dive into this world since I guess May when, when these episodes started airing and I've absolutely loved it. I mean, there've been individual parts that I've liked more or less. Um, but on the whole, it's been really like an almost transcendent experience. Seth, did you, did you sort of come to Twin Peaks or, uh, or even the return uh, with a sort of background in like David Lynch, like is that sort of how you found it, or was it more just sort of knowing about Twin Peaks specifically through the general like TV universe? So I, I watched the first two seasons um, about five years ago, uh, and immediately became obsessed with them. Um, and it, this was a little bit before there was any talk of a possible return, uh, and so. I started out watching them on Netflix very quickly, then bought The Complete Mystery when it was available, tore through that and Fire Walk With Me and The Missing Pieces and everything else, uh, uh, all of the extras on there, and now have watched all of that at least three times, um, some of those more than three times. So I was very geared up uh, for for the return and had sort of been counting down the days and had gone through various stages of grief when it looked like David Lynch might not be involved. Um, uh, and so I am a David Lynch fan and uh, have always loved his movies, but I, I'm sort of uh, a casual David Lynch fan. I'm a, I'm a David Lynch fan in the sense that if you have not watched David Lynch, you would probably think I was a total fanatic. 
If you are a David Lynch fanatic, you would think I was a total dilettante. Um, so I've seen his movies and I like his movies, but I, I, there have been references in The Return that I can sort of, I know vaguely are a callback to something in one of his previous works. And I can't immediately identify what it is in the way that I've heard other people be able to do that. Although this has now, you know, now I'm reading, I'm in the middle of Lynch on Lynch. Uh, I'm, I'm reading his, what's the title of the Big Fish book, which I forget, but I'm reading Catching, Catching the, the Big, Big Fish. Fish. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so um, I just uh, rewatched Eraserhead last week uh, and all of the short Lynch films that are on that, including The Amputee with Catherine Coulson, um, which was which was great and actually reminded me a little bit of the end of episode 12 when you had the Audrey Charlie scene and then the Roadhouse scene where they were just spitting out lots of names uh, willy-nilly. Um, so it, it seems as if Twin Peaks is turning me into a bona fide <laughs> David Lynch fanatic. Um, I think it, it might have done that to me years ago as well. I, I, I was surprised when we started this podcast to really realize that my love of Lynch had actually maybe started with Twin Peaks, um, which I hadn't quite put together. And uh, I think that's as good a way as any to get into Lynch. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's perfect. <laughs> All right. I feel the urge to mention before we get into part 13. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, do consider rating or reviewing the show on iTunes. We've gotten a few new uh, reviews, etc., off the back of our Glenn Kenny show last week. Thanks again to Glenn. You the best. We always appreciate more rates and reviews, as I always am fond of mentioning. There are so many Twin Peaks podcasts, and it's not that I don't love them all, but we must crush them. And that's just how it is. It's not personal. Um, And rates and reviews are really the only way that we can do that. So, you know, keep that in mind. Even if you don't have iTunes, it's it's pretty easy to do, um, to download and then do it just for us. So, you know, think about it. We've also had some lovely people just sort of sharing the podcast and talking about the podcast a lot on Twitter and sort of getting the word out there. And I really particularly noticed that this last week. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's been doing that. That has been lovely. Yeah, everyone's been rad as hell. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is that I also host another podcast, which I don't plug on here enough. It's called Sorted Cinema. Uh, I host it with the wonderful Ricky D, who's been a past guest on this podcast, as well as uh, some other fine folk. We talk about other films that and other things that aren't Lynch. I know we're going to be doing a recap of the Fantasia Fest, uh, in, which just took place in Montreal uh, over this past month. Uh, it's going to be great. You're going to hear about all kinds of great, new, wonderful, weird, wild movies that you may not have a chance to hear about otherwise. Uh, so do stay tuned for that uh, over at SortedCinema.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Okay, that's enough of that. Enough plugging. Part 13 of The Return. Uh, actually, even before I get into Part 13 of The Return, can I just take a moment to say, boy, we never thought Part 8 would be as relevant again as it felt yeah. again this week. <laughs> uh, just wanted to throw that out there before we get into this. Uh, part 13. So, obviously, for, for those who watched, we opened with uh, a quite quite extended segment back. Well, didn't quite open with, but very nearly opened with. The first major sort of uh, sequence set piece was with the return of Bad Coop and uh, a set of other very bad men and an arm wrestling match and some other things and poor, poor Ray. Uh, before we move on, of course, to everyone else in the show, including the first appearances of Big Ed Hurley, which I'm sure we will... Uh, want to discuss. So, um, I guess I want to start with Bad Coop because he's back. He's been gone for a few, uh, for a, a few, a few installments. And actually, this was a big one for Kyle McLaughlin because we get 
quite a bit of time with Dougie, and we got quite a bit of time with Bad Coop as well. So he is in the vast majority of scenes after taking most of the last episode, uh, taking a little bit of a break. Um, so how did we feel about this sort of... Uh, I'm going to start with you, Kate, because I, I, we've already sort of discussed this a little bit. How did you feel about this sort of extended, almost like Steven Seagal-esque um, set piece with this giant television and this arm wrestling uh, challenge? Um, I really liked it a lot. I mean, I think um, I think I was on board uh, with the arm wrestling stuff because I it, it sort of occurred to me pretty early on that it that it was working at the level of something like parody. I mean, that this idea that there is a giant gang of big burly men who have somehow come to this complex agreement that they're all going to defer power to the person who can win at arm wrestling is of course ridiculous and and something of a joke. Um, so there there is like this structural joke in the scene about I don't know how action uh, is sort of depicted on television and, and movies at large, of course, the Steven Seagal reference makes perfect sense. Um, but sort of the silliness of a lot of that, that there's these sort of complex rules and setups always in those things, and really it can just be boiled down to who can, like, strong-arm someone else uh, the, the best. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was quite funny, actually. Um, but then at the same time, I found the scene quite... Um, I don't know, taught in a certain way, particularly once we get past the arm wrestling and we move into the encounter between Coop and Evil Coop and Ray. I thought that was all interesting. There was, of course, some sort of lore. We get more lore about uh, Philip Jeffries and various other things in that sequence. Um, but I have to say, the stuff I, like, I liked the most about this scene was all of the, um, the formal play with uh, the television screen, the giant mm-hmm. television screen. I actually thought that stuff was... Amazing. I mean, it was one of my favorite things that I think Lynch has done so far in the scene. When you in the in the series, when you realize that all of the men are watching a a wall size, uh, what seems to be an electronic television screen. I mean, of course, that's not really possible for any number of reasons. And then I love the idea that Lynch doubles down on the sort of impossibility of it when, and I didn't catch this till the second time I watched the episode, You, the first time you see the big screen, it's Coop uh, getting out of his truck, and it's presumably mm-hmm. a kind of surveillance camera taken from the ceiling, and sure, that sort of makes some sense. Then the next time you cut back to the giant wall screen, it's a surveillance close-up at eye, like at face level of Evil Coop, which is of course like a totally impossible shot. I mean, it, it just isn't possible that there would be a camera like that close to Evil Coop that then is projecting this image onto a big television that all the men are watching. And for me, this was maybe sort of the first moment in the episode that calls up something like Inland Empire. Uh, there's an amazing, for people who haven't seen it, there's an amazing scene at the end of Inland Empire where Laura Dern's character comes across a television screen and there's these sort of impossible images being projected on the television screen. Um, and I thought Lynch was doing that again here, like playing with the sort of impossibility of the uncanniness of the surveillance, um, which is then again hinted at when Coop uh, walks out of the room and looks up at the camera. Uh, and I don't know, all of that I thought was wonderful. I just, I thought it was great. But I, I gather you weren't as crazy about it, Simon. I, I don't know. Well, we can get to that in a minute. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, Seth, if, if, you're, uh, if your background in science uh, made you yeah. particularly fond of these details. Yeah, th- I thought this scene was fascinating. And, and it did something that I associate very much with David Lynch, which is take a situation that starts out as being as as playing as absurdist or comical um and you know the whole nursery school kindergarten quip uh and then sucker punch um felt very apt because i did sort of feel like what the hell am i want this is the dumbest (laughs) setup that anyone could ever think up and then it it goes from that to something very menacing 
Um, and I found the actual arm wrestling match itself and the way that Mr. C sort of displayed his mastery of the situation to be incredibly chilling uh, and unnerving. Um, and at the same time, you know, when, when he kept saying, well, let's go back to starting position, it was one of many, many times throughout the season that I felt like there was also an additional dialogue going on between the authors and the director and the audience. Um, and, you know, we're constantly both within the series itself. Now it's been established pretty definitively that the timeline is not happening consecutively. Um, so there's a feeling in the viewer of constantly going back. Uh, and then they seem to be also playing with in, in Dougie Cooper, uh, or Cooper as Dougie Jones, um, this this sense of frustration on the part of the audience that we're still back essentially uh, to where we were when we first met him, and we're kind of seizing on to the smallest glimmers of consciousness or life in hopes that we're gonna uh, that we're gonna move past this starting position. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. I also the the mirror, uh, not the mirror, uh, the screen was so um, was so visually striking and also sort of unnerving. And the reason I said mirror is because it it played both as what it was, but also it, initially I almost read it as a two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other parts where, you know, when when Richard Horn is is comes in and is staring at Cooper, uh, at Mr. C, and then Mr. C almost seems to make eye contact with him when he's leaving. Um, that it 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 plays as uh, a two-way video link, um, or it, it it plays as Mr. C and his odd relationship to technology, uh, and you know he can see into a camera and through a camera, um, and there was something especially unnerving about that because of of Mr. C's black shark-like contact lenses, um, which uh, which I think Kyle McLaughlin has sort of utilized really masterfully. Um, and this was this was a scene also in which I think I I had a new appreciation for what Kyle is doing with this character. Um, uh, and it was also interestingly a scene in which he seemed to to me he seemed to display some of Dougie Cooper's mannerisms like there was a a moment where um when renzo had his arm almost at at had almost beaten him and and mr c sort of tilted his head and looked at it as if it was something he was experiencing for the first time like oh this is interesting and odd um so on the whole i thought it was an incredibly effective scene uh i guess the one thing that that bothered me most about it is something that has bothered me and I think is what has bothered me most about the entire season. Um, And that's that we are living in a world in which apparently there is essentially only one race of people, and that's Caucasians. Um, The more you get scenes with crowds and the more you get minor ancillary characters and all of them are white, Um, it's something that, uh, I think that's one of the things that I've struggled with most about, about this season. I just want to throw a question out there. How hard do you think Frost and Lynch had to fight to not throw sometimes my arms bend back into this scene? (laughs) Because I was expecting that line hardcore. Um, 
You know, it's funny. I, I'm so used to Lynch's like extreme whiteness that I've sort of stopped noticing, which is not great. Like it's really a sign that it's very omnipresent. But you're right. Like I think the only like since we don't have any hawk in this episode, I'm pretty sure the only person of color is like the host at the roadhouse, which is you know not so great. <laughs> no, right. But anyway, um, yeah. I mean, the, my feeling about the sequence, and I've I've watched the episode twice now. Um, my my issue on initial viewing wasn't so much that I didn't like the sequence. It was more that like, but when it was over. I felt that I felt the need to like check to see how much of of the episode we'd spent at this warehouse having, you know, having a, an arm wrestling contest. And it turns out it was like a full third. And I couldn't help but resent it a little bit, um, especially because so much of what we get elsewhere is like so is so much more in my in my personal Lynch slash Twin Peaks wheelhouse. So I, I felt it kind of colored my perception of the entire episode, even though like as a sequence, in the context of the whole show, I, I, I don't really have a problem with it, but I can't lie. I, or rather, I'm not going to lie and say that I wouldn't have rather spent some of that time on maybe some things that I care slightly more about. I don't think this is going to lessen your resentment any, but I think it was probably it was like a quarter of the episode. <laughs> so you gained a little bit back. Yeah, there. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, because there's also I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but there are two scenes that happen prior right, to yes. uh, that scene. Right. As well. So that might have accounted for some of that time. But um, no, I mean, it definitely feels like a bit of a I think you're right, Simon. I mean, I think it does feel like a bit of a departure from what you might what sort of normally falls within the kind of like Lynch uh, universe, sort of. I mean, um, especially compared to the scene that happens just before, which is little uh, Sunny Jim having the gym set delivered to the house, and you mm-hmm. get the backyard scene of the gym set, and it's it's so it's like quintessential Lynch. I mean, mm-hmm. that that image is so much part of what he does, and then we move into this other space with like yeah this gang of toughs engaged in like an arm wrestling competition so my question is did the spotlight come with the gym set sure (laughs) well yeah i mean it's a it's spotlights do not bode well for those who are found within them um typically in twin peaks i mean there's uh you know the 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 most upsetting use of spotlight that i can remember is is maddie's murder uh in season two when all of a sudden there was this sort of spotlight on the first floor of 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 Mm. the palmer household um but another you know when when the giant appeared on stage and the original run it always was a sign that something not good was happening so it it did make me nervous anew for sunny jim Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was because I, I think I saw I think I saw you Seth mention that with somebody else on Twitter, and it hadn't actually occurred to me while watching it um, the connection, like the content connection to the existence of the spotlight in other places. That the thing that struck me most about that scene was, yeah, again, just Lynch's sort of um, complete willingness in the return to go to this space where, you know, like sub- the, the the subjective and the objective are completely fused and that it would be almost impossible to sort of separate them, which is very rare on television. Um, I mean, I think uh, we haven't mentioned it here, actually, but when we were trying to think of comparisons for something similar to what Lynch does, I think Simon mentioned um, Adult Swim commercials, but the one I'm just remembering now that I had thought of a few years ago were some of the early episodes of Louie, mm-hmm. where very odd things would happen and it just was sort of, it would, the, the show never 
never settled the question as to whether it was supposed to be sort of someone's imagining of the scene or someone's like effective experience of a scene being dramatized or if it was an objective uh, development that was just never really explained. And that was sort of how I felt about the the sequence with the this insane gym set. I mean, it's a crazy, right? And it's sort of like you can certainly rate it as a, as a kind of um, visual uh, manifestation of maybe what Sunny Jim is feeling or like how, how Coop is seeing this scenario or something. Um, and I think all of that works. I mean, I think that makes total sense. I think what I found fascinating about it the second time around was realizing how uh, explicitly Sunny Jim was was looping yes. through yeah. the thing. And because and, that's going to be a constant theme throughout this episode, right? Is things stuck on a sort of inevitable loop. Um, and, and, the, and the last thing I'll say about that scene as well with uh, with Janie, and both when she receives the, the gym set in the car and then when she's talking to Coop, is is there, there's some interesting stuff going on with her um, love being equated with objects and money. Like this idea that her, her glee and her joy and her love for Coop are very much mapped onto like his ability to to provide material goods to them, which I, I don't think is something we've seen lately with her and that character. So it was interesting to see it come back. But anyway, yeah. And it was very explicit in this episode with her, um, which which I thought was interesting. But yeah, the looping thing was, was something that, that struck me because you see within the episode a bunch of different examples of loops. And then there are also sort of examples of loops that exist throughout Twin Peaks when you have Ed and Norma staring at each other across the double R in a scene that feels like it would have and probably did play out very similarly 25 years ago or 27 years ago. It's uh, it's funny that you bring up Louis as a point of comparison because I think that um, Louis C.K. is one of the few people who's sort of taken up some of like Lynch's sort of surreal quirks. I'm thinking specifically of, uh, and I wish I could remember the actress's name right now because she's great on all kinds of stuff. But like in the first and second season when he uses the same actress to play um, his date in one episode in the first season. And then in a flashback episode in, the, uh, in I believe the second season, he brings back the same actress to play his mother. He says just because he liked the actress, but obviously it has sort of, you know, other... Nothing else going on here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else going on. It's totally, totally normal behavior. Well, um, and also, Louis has one of my favorite non-Gordon Cole, David Lynch acting... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, ...turns in that absolutely brilliant, um, you know, night show whisperer character. Yeah, that if, he uh, if you've never watched any Louis before, I highly recommend all Twin Peaks fans watch the three, the late show three-parter with um, with Lynch as his sort of comedy trainer because it is it is really, it's gut-bustingly hilarious. And I know that's like an annoying poster phrase to say, but it's really, really very funny. Um, moving on, um, I mean, I, th- I think another... One of the moments that really struck me from this episode, and I wanted to know, I wanted to get everyone else's uh, take on it, is um, in this sort of show, we get the umpteenth showdown between Dougie and someone who's supposed to try to kill Dougie. Uh, In this case, it's Tom Sizemore as Anthony. And obviously, there's a lot about that sequence in this, uh, outside this uh, cafe um, that will resonate for, you know, Twin Peaks fans. But the moment I was really struck by is when. Dougie is standing behind Anthony, and he's not quite massaging him, but he is making some kind of hand-shoulder contact. And he looks down at the white dandruff on his, like, sort of dark gray suit and just keeps kind of, like, 
not quite thumbing, and then eventually Sizemore just breaks down. And I don't know if anyone else made this connection, but when I was looking at him, looking at the, at, at the dandruff on the suit, I kept thinking about the sequence of Cooper falling through the stars. Yes. I thought about that and also about the the stars and dots that appeared on the insurance form that sort of mm-hmm. set this whole part of that plot in motion. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the things that I have found so cool and 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 fun about this this season of Twin Peaks. And that's I have no idea if the if that callback to him falling through the ether uh, was intentional that it also t- it reminded me of some of the shots in part eight um, yeah, where the screen would sort of dissolve into a, a kind of black and white snow. Um, and it's equal. It seems equally possible to me that that was 100 percent intentional and that Lynch never had that on his mind. Um, and there's this sort of sense with the return that you can go as deep as you want um, and you will continually be rewarded even if the things that you're finding were not mm-hmm. put there intentionally. Right. Even if we get an uh, an outtake and then we find out or like, I don't know, we, we, we find out that Tom Sizemore, like his only character note from Lynch was like, poor scalp care. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> or that, or that you know, Tom Sizemore actually has really bad dandruff, and it was sort of a Frank Silva type situation where yeah. uh, Lynch noticed it and said, "Brilliant!" And decided <laughs> that that Tom was going to be, yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything even to add about the the Anthony um, breaking down sort of confessional scene. It. It was interesting. I mean, I think, as you say, Simon, this is, I think, what, the third version of this scenario that we've gotten where someone has been has been foiled by the helpless Dougie uh, in these scenarios. I, what, I, what I liked about it was that I don't think it's something you see very often on television when sort of violence is such a pervasive element of representations on television now. I actually don't think it's very common to see someone of their own, of almost basically their own prompting uh, uh breaking down and sort of i mean and, and i don't know i found i found sizemore's sort of moral uh collapse here quite interesting i mean his um that line where he says i only want to change or die mm-hmm. I, I don't know i mean I, I found all of that quite uh impressive even as tom sizemore's performance here is is a little odd i mean you know sizemore's um acting has been a little strange throughout and i assume that that is again uh something lynch is sort of prompting and directing i mean sizemore's kind of obsessive blinking like if you go back and watch he's, he's like blinking as much as he can in every scene it's very strange um but yeah i mean i i liked it i liked this idea of dougie's goodness being able to prompt that i liked it as an, yet another example of the sorts of kind of ripples and effects that violence has down the road i mean when when sizemore is like i've been vomiting blood you know i mean i there, there are things that you know that i think the return in a lot of ways is very interested in mapping all of the different ways in which violence ripples out and affects things mm-hmm. in, in ways that aren't obvious or visible at first and I, and I thought that was all really interesting here i sort of skipped it over by accident but in the actual opening sequence which features this absurd music cue which yeah um, <laughs> another weird digital looping thing another yes. very strange yeah. example of that but anyway yeah i i actually took the liberty of sampling it and slowing it down and i'm gonna play it at the end of this podcast it's really just like a t- I don't want to say typical because Battle of has a lot of modes, but it's very clearly like a jazzy music cue, very much in the in the vein of like freshly squeezed from the original show, but just like sped up, you know, 
250% or something. Um, unfortunately, my audio uh, editing software is not very advanced, so it's going to sound like crap, but you will get the idea of sort of what it originally sounded like. Um, but anyway, in, in that scene, um, the way that... <laughs> The way that they've got Sizemore, it's like it's 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 silent film acting, right? Like the way he's just like his eyes are popping out of his head and he's like crawling under the desk. It's not like a t- from what I recall of Tom Sizemore and other things, like not exactly like in his you know typical wheelhouse of performance style. Well, and it's also playing against type for him more generally. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the evolution of his character, he started out seemingly as a very Tom Sizemore-esque character, uh, and now has become something very much the opposite of that. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about that, the opening scene, is that it was another example um, uh, of something happening this season in which I wasn't sure if that music was supposed to be diegetic or non-diegetic, because they're ways in which there it cuts in and out in ways that it would not seem to do if it was actually taking place in that world um but if it's not taking place in that world it's unclear to me where it is supposed to be taking place (laughs) um he's definitely lynch is definitely doing I don't know, everything he can to, yeah, to, to make it so that I think as viewers, we can't easily slot that music into, into the background or into some, into something that we just expect to be there. Right. I mean, it, it is so overt. It's very, it's like the Sean Colvin cover of Mm -hmm. uh, Viva Las Vegas playing in another episode. Right. I mean, it's, it's so, um, just, it just sticks out in, in a, in an auditory way. Like it's too, Mm -hmm. it's too extreme. It's too much. And it, and it just sort of, um, yeah, it uh, throws you off a little bit in a very weird way. Well, and yeah. it's so it's such a marked contrast from how music was used in the original show, right? Where yes, not only yeah. because it was omnipresent, but also because it was so of a piece with itself and with whatever was going on to the extent that, you know, music like Battle of Menti's score was basically its own character. And, and it was a character with a very, you know, consistent character. That sounded dumb. Anyway. <laughs> no, but, yeah, I think you're exactly right. One other really brief thing I wanted to say about that opening scene is that um, it, I might be wrong on this, but it seemed to me that it was the first scene that we've seen Candy exist as a human being that does not only respond to prompts. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, she when remembers she's objects. And, and she seems to have genuine excitement at being to, able to present Bushnell Mullins with with these gifts, um, which was striking given all of her other interactions. I guess the, the one other time when we've seen her display that sort of overt consciousness is when she smacked uh, um, Rodney in the cheek with the with the TV remote. <laughs> um, yeah, there's something interesting going on in that scene too with her her very extreme reaction to these gifts. It it it, it mirrors what's going on with Janie with the with the sort of like pure effective joy over mm-hmm. money and excess and like these extreme gifts. I mean, I was watching that scene. I was like, this the idea of giving the head of your insurance company a car and like diamond cufflinks because of this payout. I mean, I yeah, like sure, I get you could justify it, and it totally makes sense in the diegetic world. But but there is still a sense in which it is just so excessive and so yeah. strange that the scene ends up functioning very much as like a kind of comment on this sort of extravagance and wealth or something. Janie looking at that car is like the second most excited we've seen her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we don't need to talk about the first. No, we talked. We talked plenty about that. <laughs> 
I mean, there's a lot of other things to talk about in this episode, but I, I, I want to relatively early get to the uh, return of Everett McGill as Big Ed Hurley. Um, I have to say, just more than anything else, I was so glad to hear that like deep baritone ring out again. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause he, that has, he, his voice has not diminished at all. If anything, it's, it's, it's deepened even more. And maybe I just have this on my mind cause Glenn Campbell just died, but like that there's something about that, like old school Americana voice that was just like extra soothing in this world. I looked him up after he reappeared here and he essentially has not done anything since 1999 when I think he was on one episode of Jag, uh, and before that, he did the straight. He was in the straight story, mm-hmm. um, but I was shocked that he has not been utilized more as an actor because he has such a uh, he has such a presence. Um, uh, and it made me think about something else, which I think is interesting about this season, which is you know mortality and the the way that we cannot reverse the passage of time and the inevitability of loss are are themes that have hung really heavily over the return but there is also such an incredible use of very old actors mm-hmm. um in a way that seems to actually underscore their vitality um you know the 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 actor who plays Bushnell Mullins is 83 what? Uh, yeah. Wow, I had wow. no idea. Jeez. Yeah. And 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 so w- when when I think Everett McGill is seventy three, um, and I just started looking up the ages of you know Russ Tamblin's eighty three, um, Robert Forrester is seventy six. Oh my god, yeah. that's crazy. Actually, I'm sorry, Don Murray who plays Bushnell Mullins is eighty eight. What? No, he's not. <laughs> oh my god, oh, I had no idea. Richard Damer <laughs> is seventy nine. Um, uh, and so you have, and you know, I mean, it, the, 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 uh, Wendy Roby is 64, Peggy Lipton, 71, Catherine Coulson uh, was 71 when she died. Grace Zabriskie Her- is 76. Yeah, we all know Peggy Lipton is a freak of nature. Yes. Well, that's true. And then, and of course, Harry Dean Stanton, right? As the, as He's the elder statesman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But even, even the new character, you know, I mean, Jennifer Jason Leigh is 55. Um, Naomi Watts is 49. It it really is a, a a series a season that showcases and highlights um, actors who are out of the sort of traditional Hollywood sweet spot, which I think is really is is interesting given the theme of mortality and death and loss. Um, I also I think it's interesting as well because I hadn't thought of it till you just pointed this out, but I think when some of the early promotional images around the show were being released one of the ideas I had, and I I was a little worried about it. I mean, I shouldn't have been, of course, but I was a little worried that one of the things the return was going to do was basically hand most of the show off to sort of a new young generation and that we would get like a new set of Bobbies and Shelleys and Audreys and all of this. And I mean, I, of course there has been that to a certain extent with Becky and maybe Steven, but, but really the show hasn't done that to the extent that I think it almost hinted it would. Um, and I, I, I find that kind of fascinating because I think that's maybe what, you know, the normal sort of television studio model would want, would be young and beautiful people. And instead, you're totally right, Seth. It's it's very much been people in their late 40s and up constitute the majority of people on the show. Uh, and I think that's fascinating, particularly when it comes to women, because as you say, this is not very common for uh, for women to have so much to do in that age range uh, of performance. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And it's it's it was really interesting to me because I have been 
not always entirely comfortable with the way women have been portrayed in this season, um, which I know is something that you've talked about uh, on the podcast before and is something that runs through David's work. Um, But, you know, like Krista Bell is either 38 or 39. Um, uh, There are a number of characters, the Naomi Watts character, the Jennifer Jason Leigh character, that just as easily could have been given to actors who were 10 or 15, or in some cases, 20 years younger. I think it's telling, both interesting and telling, that, that they weren't. To return to the original uh, guy who got us thinking about yes. age on Sorry, the show. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, no, no, it's all it's all good stuff. Everett McGill is Big Ed, um, and in a in a in a relationship that very much mirrors um, what we saw with Bobby, to the extent that we actually get a scene with them where we're made to take a moment to reflect on that similarity. Um, we find out that, of course, he and uh, and Norma are no longer an item, secret or otherwise, um, although it seems like they must have been at some recent point because Bobby seems to think that there's something going on. Um, but uh, no, Lynch, is, Lynch and Frost are still very much interested in mining this sort of like quiet, lonely male pathos thing uh, between he and Bobby. And I think that in, in other contexts on other shows, I, it could strike me as corny an old fashioned, but I think uh, both Everett McGill and Dana Ashbrook have just killed it in their respective scenes of just quiet pining. And if anything, Everett, Everett McGill got to me even more um, in this scene, watching um, watching Norma be uh, be sort of semi successfully sweet talked to by her businessman boyfriend, right, Walter. Oh, that businessman boyfriend. He's That's no a- good. He's just no good. Um, that I found that scene very hard to watch. I found it even harder the second time around. And it, oh, again, it's just Lynch and Frost like masterfully being able to milk, a, a, you know, a trope on this show that is now thirty years old, which is this idea again of of Norma being caught in a relationship that is not a good one and uh and sorry a big ed watching from outside and this idea that we all know in our heart of hearts that they should just be together and it's not gonna happen um that that scene where she is sitting across the table from this guy and he is managing her like he's he's her boyfriend but he's managing her and he's giving her this speech. And I mean, and it's like this perfect kind of confluence of, I think maybe I'm wrong to separate it so clearly like this, but it still strikes me as the right way to separate it. Like Mark Frost's, you know, interest in kind of mapping things like sort of neoliberalism and and this, like the rise of, um, uh, you know, standardization and mechanization and and replication and all of this stuff as a mode of, of capitalism on the one hand. And then Lynch's sort of like personal, um, stakes and the idea of artistry versus uh profitability and versus yeah. profit i mean b- both of those are there and it's it's such it's a difficult scene to watch that stuff be enacted on norma particularly because peggy lipton is so wonderful at sort of bringing i don't know like a quiet strength to her sort of trying to fight this off and you watch this and you just know that it's like a lonely fight and she's gonna lose or something you know it's it's i don't know that's a great i thought it was a great scene well the the love doesn't always turn a profit line yeah. from walter um, seems like uh, th- that could be signifying many, many things, uh, including conversations that Lynch might have had with investors over the years um, about his artistic vision and, and the freedom to pursue it. Um, but I think that the, one of the reasons why the, that scene works is because of the 
work that Everett McGill's face does. Um, you know, the looks that he gives, and then I'm sure we'll discuss that ending scene later, but also in the, in the scene where he's eating alone after telling Bobby, you shouldn't eat alone, um, (laughs) is, uh, it, it, it's just, it's almost overwhelming in how, uh, in how sad it is. Oh, Everett McGill and the pathos, man. He yeah. he knows how to get your heart. Especially, he also has like a really killer, like new hipster haircut. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, he's got the same uh, he's got the same haircut as Josh Brolin in Deadpool now. <laughs> yeah, weird. he has a lot more hair than I do. Um, there's also there, there was a weird thing with with him where um, you know again talking about looping where he seemed to be sort of out of time. Um, it, the haircut was one of the things where I felt like I could see that being his haircut in the fifties. Um, and then even how he referred to Norma as babe, uh, which is something that it seems like they were doing when they were in a relationship, uh, but probably most of the time are not doing now. Um, and then the way his, his whole Big Ed's gas farm is, is, is set up and portrayed, uh, it was another sort of way that they seem to be playing with time um, and, and the sense of then versus now uh, in on multiple ways. Mm-hmm. I, I thought uh, we should mention here too because I, I know people were talking about it online. But the um, the fact that in that final sequence you have, uh, if you look very closely, there is a moment where um, Big Ed's reflection is yeah. caught in the window, and then all of a sudden there's a there's like a cut within the reflection. Um, so the reflection sort of suddenly changes, and it, and it's it, once you see it, it's quite uncanny. It's like very unusual. Wow, I didn't catch and, that. And, yeah, you have to it's, look pretty closely. It's a small part of the frame. It's yeah, B- Big Ed in the reflection is drinking soup and Big Ed watching the reflection is not. Yeah. Well, maybe this is something sort of a broader subject we can talk about because as you'll well know, Seth, there have been so many theories, some might say conspiracy theories <laughs> about, you know, the show's concept of perhaps multiple universes and you've already made a reference to timelines that don't seem to line up. And it's not clear if we're just seeing things out of sequence or if there are perhaps multiple planes of reality. Um, and I think one of the things that's most that's uh, sort of most uh, that's prompted the most speculation, I think, has been the two scenes we've gotten now with uh, with Audrey and her uh, and her husband um, and uh, her husband Charlie, rather. And um, I mean. I, I, I I didn't read a lot of speculation this week, but I but I have to imagine it was just fuel to the fire um, when we get this scene this week of um, with Audrey where she's she's having this it's it's a much more at least I found it to be a more disturbing conversation than we got yes. last week where there's really now this sense of confinement where she's trying to figure out how to leave and she doesn't know how and it to me it it almost felt like. If, if it weren't for Charlie's comment about it seems like you're on drugs, I would have begun to thought that maybe she has Alzheimer's or something um, because it just seems like she's extremely disoriented. I mean, she talks about disassociation and not knowing who she is. And it's really it's really troubling to see from a, especially from a character we've been waiting to be reunited with. Yeah, it, I've watched the scene now three times and it only gets more disturbing for me each time. It's 
it was one of the most disturbing scenes for me in the run so far, which is saying something given uh, the number of different disturbing scenes. But um, it's I found it impossible to um, locate it within time, uh, like year time. Like, when is this supposed to be taking place? Um, I, I found it impossible to navigate whether this is an interior uh, monologue taking place within Audrey that is being portrayed as a dialogue. Um, Which is a popular you know, theory. And I think what symbols symbolizes to me how upsetting and disturbing it is, is that all of the theories totally seem plausible to me. Maybe she's in a coma and she's overhearing things. Maybe she's in a psychiatric hospital and this is some odd form of therapy. Uh, maybe she's in a disassociative state. Maybe she's in a play or a movie about her own life. Um, I just have no idea. Uh, but whereas last week when she was first introduced, that was odd. Um, and there were a lot of odd things about it. Uh, this was unnerving to me, unnerving on a whole other level. You know, her saying, um, I don't know who I am. Uh, um, I, I, I forget myself. Uh, Charlie's saying, and what is one of the most ominous lines of, of the return, am I going to have to end your story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean yeah. Um, and her, and her reference to, um, what story is that? The little girl who lived down the lane. Yeah. Uh, which is very strange. That was for me, one of the other main moments in this episode that made me think of Inland Empire. Um, cause the beginning of Inland Empire, there's Grace Zabriskie telling these stories about like the little girl who went out to play. And, um, and, and there is also a movie called the little girl who lived down the lanes during Jodie Foster, which some uh, nice person on Twitter pointed out to me. Um, so yeah, there's, I, there's very, there's a lot in that scene. That's very unusual. I mean, in, in relation to questions of time, which we haven't talked about yet, someone else on Twitter pointed out that the set design in both scenes, Yes. Uh, once you start noticing it, is very clearly not set in the current day. Like the the every item in in the both spaces that they're in seems to be from sort of the fifties or or possibly the late forties. And and you know of course that could just be that they have chosen those things and they live in a house like that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're in some other time. But I think um, Seth, all of your points about everything that could be happening here and how they all seem plausible. It again, it just points out how how much of what Lynch is interested in doing in in so much of his art really is just about sort of unmooring us. Like it's about, it's about disallowing us the kind of comfort of feeling like we do know what's going on and that we can slot these things into sort of clear boxes. I mean, when, when people started talking about this idea that, that Audrey was in a coma, I, you know, my first reaction was like, honestly, to roll my eyes a little bit. I, I've, I've calmed down on that a little bit. I don't <laughs> think that's a fair reaction, but I, the reason I felt like kind of rolling my eyes a little bit was because I don't, I really would never expect that Lynch would make it that clear. I mean, it, it would be like the idea that the second half of Mulholland Drive, we would get a shot where someone is like, where Betty wakes up from a dream and is like, oh, it was all a dream. I mean, I, I just don't think that will ever happen. And so it's like, of course, we want to ask the question, like, what could be going on here? But for me, I think Lynch is, is much more interested in putting us in that position where there are many alternatives and it just isn't possible to decide between them and I, and I think that this is um, something I wanted to add about the previous scene we were just talking about as well part of what's going on with the way in which time and timelines are being used here because I think in a lot of ways this idea of like wanting to talk about multiple universes is again another way in which people maybe want to 
uh, neutralize some of the difficulty around yeah. mm-hmm. what Lynch is doing with these things. And I, the idea that we have two scenes here that seem very explicitly uh, in the episode to not be... Uh, functioning within the time that we expect to be functioning. So first we have she- uh, Becky calling Shelley at uh, the diner, and that clearly seems to have happened before the scenario in which Becky goes off and shoots Stephen. That seems to have happened earlier. And then we have Bobby saying, uh, you know, we found stuff that my father left for me today right. in the diner, which, which of course gives an answer to everybody who's like, how have they not gone on this field trip yet to go deal with this? And it's because, you know, time isn't, isn't working linearly here. So there's that side of it. But the thing that I like about all of that is, in a certain sense, this is really just Lynch pointing out how much we just rely and take comfort from the idea that time is going to unfold linearly in most sorts of um, representations and most sort of like moving images. He's like, it doesn't actually have to. There is no rule why scene A has to go before scene B. They can really just all happen whenever. And that is something we just sort of have to deal with. And I... I find that like fascinating that that's what he's doing here. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to be so interested to see if um, because again, it's it's not just Lynch we have to think about. It, it's also Frost, and I yeah, I'm so curious to see. And it's been I think it's been illustrative that this week, um, I think it was Nevins at Showtime was was talking about the prospect of another season of Twin Peaks um, because he was asked about it at uh, I believe the TCAs and. Um, and he basically said, you know, like, look, there's been no discussions about another season, but, you know, if, if Lynch wants to come to us, then, you know, we'll we'll chat, basically is what he said. Um, but I, I just, I find it fascinating that I think people are kind of already thinking about the, the after, because I think people are already thinking, oh, well, so we'll get another season where, where Cooper is awake. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, right. And, and, and everything will be normal. Like, I think people, I, I think you're, I hadn't thought of it that way, Kate, but I think you're totally right. That people are kind of trying to neutralize and people are thinking that, okay, well, in these last four episodes, we're definitely going to get some concrete answers or these last three episodes, these last two episodes, maybe in these well, last five minutes. Or, or <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I completely agree with what you said about, you know, people hoping we'll get a season four so we can have the continued adventures of FBI special agent Dale Cooper. Um, and one thing it seems like this season should have made clear is even if there is a season four or a season four through 20, we are never going to get the <laughs> adventures of FBI agent, special agent Dale Cooper and the way that the audience sort of verbalized wanting it before this season began. Um, you know, we're, we're, we cannot go back there. Um, uh, but Kate, getting to something you were talking about, about order and chronology and time, one of the things I think is really fascinating is both how, in some ways, the way that it is being presented is how our minds naturally reorder things, um, to make sort of emotional sense, uh, rather than logical sense, um, which is something that we all do inevitably um i'm i'm and i've i've written about memory as in in sort of a scientific way uh and people who study memory are 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 astounded that eyewitness testimony is sort of ever counted as anything other than like reading tea leaves um because we all create narratives and order things in a way so that they make sense and this season seems like it has um been ordered in such a way that it makes emotional sense. Um, And within that emotional sense, 
it also makes enough chronological sense so that we can follow it. Um, but, you know, you have the scenes that you were talking about. You also have the fact that uh, in episode 12, um, Dougie was playing ball in the middle of, or Dougie was playing throw in the middle of the day with Sonny Jim. Uh, and then episode 13 clearly shows that he has not been home um, right. at all yeah. during that time. Yeah. Uh, and, and so things like that are cropping up again and again and again, but it actually doesn't matter in terms of our understanding of the plot. We still know that they got that, that Hawk and Sheriff Truman and, and Bobby got that message from Major Briggs at some point in the past. And at some point in the future, something's going to happen at Jack Rabbit's palace and whatever else happens in between, maybe it was a day before or a day after it doesn't really matter um, mm-hmm. what matters is that we kind of emotionally understand and grok and, and accept what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's so telling that, and it could just be because I'm dumb, but it's all, you know, I just, I don't notice these asynchronous things until someone points them out to me and then they're incredibly obvious, but I think there is something to the notion that it, it just makes emotional sense. There's also, um, Miriam Bale on Twitter throughout to the, uh, to the Twitter audience. What do you see as the difference between, um, the puzzle box narratives of someone like Christopher Nolan um, versus what Twin Peaks is doing with uh, with the return, or I think she, the other example she threw out there was uh, last year at Marion Bad. And uh, my answer, which is the best I could come up with, is that you know something like Memento, if you've seen it, it relies on its edit its reverse editing structure. You can watch the movie in like forwards; it's not the same. It doesn't have the same impact. Um, you need to you need to watch the you need to watch it in the intended order of scenes, the, the very specific intended linear order or order of scenes to understand the point of the movie. Whereas so much of the return, it feels like you could watch not only the episodes, but the scenes in basically yeah. any order. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, but, um, and, and for a TV show, I, I really can't think of. And ironically, um, again, Louis is sort of another weird example where, um, there's there's all this he sort of started to get rid of it in later seasons but there's all this deliberate discontinuity that ma- that made sure that not only between episodes but but between individual segments and episodes they could be watched in any order um, I guess the difference here is that Lynch and Frost are building this this contiguous universe or set of universes but to me that was the best thing that I could think of to really delineate the difference between like a sort of a, a Nolan-esque puzzle box versus a Lynchian puzzle box and it you know, I, I was thinking about sort of the this exact question in relation to this episode. Like, what scenes can you take and put somewhere else? And so here we have the first interaction between Mr. C and Richard Horn. Um, and in some ways, that relies on our knowing that Richard Horn is a horrible person uh, f- for the power of that. But then I started thinking, what if you put that scene before you knew anything else about Richard Horn? All you would have is this unsettling kind of unspoken um, through this mediated screen interaction between these two characters. And then later you find out what and who Richard Horn is. I think that could work just as well um, and would be unsettling and unnerving and scary and in in a, a, a very similar way. So there are some scenes that you do have to have occur before some other scenes. You know, you have to have Ray shooting Mr. C before Mr. C kills Ray. Um, but for a lot of it, you know, the, the sort of sense that you could do like a, a, a Burroughs cut up method on this, um, I think actually does, does work. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that within, that, that as you say, Simon, it's like within, that so much of what is important about the return is sort of happening within these, these sort of long extended scenes that are all kind of spatially sort of lumped together. And, and I mean, for example, the one that you mentioned at the beginning here, which is uh, Evil Coop walking into the Western Montana space, and it takes sort of 10 minutes. Um, you know, so much of what is important about the, about the return is, the connection between people within those scenes. Um, I, like Glenn Kenny last week talked about them as sort of like unsculpted blocks of time. And I think that that's a really rare and unusual mode on television. I mean, it's not very common, this idea that um, even, like I, I've been trying to count actually as we've been watching these episodes, sort of how many scenes take place in these uh, episodes of the return, the parts of the return, and it's not very many. I mean, most of the time there's a, there's between ten and like fourteen to fifteen scenes, uh, and they're quite long, and they're and they're sort of very much the emotional kind of sphere and space of them is different across each one, and I, I, th- that's sort of so fascinating, and I think it really lends a lot. It really helps this idea that you could watch things out of order. Um, I mean, I think maybe one of the other interesting kind of comparisons to this sort of idea is a few years ago when. Um, Mitch Hurwitz brought back Arrested Development and, and sort of mm-hmm. talked up this big idea that there would be the show where you could watch everything out of order and all of this stuff. And and famously, it kind of didn't work. And, and Mitch Hurwitz admitted as much and said, actually, I you have to watch them in a certain order, of course, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so much of that is because, like, of course, yes, as, as Seth says, like, there are things that make sense. You have to watch causally for certain things. Um, but I think sort of what we're maybe trying to get at as a whole here is that, again, part of what is so wonderful and so interesting about The Return has so much more to do with the kind of emotional registers that are happening in these spaces rather than simply the narrative drive towards um, unfolding things in a way that's going to give us some puzzle box solution. I, I think you're totally right, Simon, and your tweet was totally right too, which is the idea that like Nolan's films rest on the idea that there will be an answer and that that is the thing we're all driving towards. With Lynch, I think the wonder and like fascination of his work rests on the idea that he is basically doing what he can to resist an answer while simultaneously enticing your belief that there must be an answer. It's like he's he's always kind of constantly holding you in that interim space and it's he's never going to quite let it go and that's what makes it so wonderful and it's why we all want to go back to it over and, and over. And just to connect it all, as I always say, Lynch gets off on being withholding. <laughs> I have a question for both of you, which is, it seems to me, from what I've read of Mark Frost's writings, both about and not about Twin Peaks, that that is very much not his impulse. He mm. likes to put things, you know, he he yes. famously loves Sherlock Holmes. He likes to put things together. He enjoys creating um, intricate settings and puzzles that do have some logic to them. Uh, and I'm, I've just been curious all the way through this season about the tension there, because they both seem to, from from the descriptions, they both were involved in this in a way that they were not both involved in seasons one and two throughout the entirety. Um, and, you know, Mark Frost wasn't involved in all it, it, with Firewalk With Me. Uh, and so I just wonder what you think about that, the tension there between what it seems like are Mark Frost's impulses and what very clearly are David Lynch's impulses. So um, I, th- I'm going to just use like a crude, simple metaphor because I like to think in crude and simple terms so that I can get on with my life. Um, <laughs> but the way that I was, I've been thinking about it is like, so Mark Frost 
is you know he loves like you said he loves um he loves research he loves sort of arcane details he loves lore um he loves you know developing lots of characters all this stuff um so i i think of of frost as the guy who like delicately puts together a mandala and then i think of lynch as the guy who like delights in toppling it but just enough so that you can see the original pattern so yeah. like i think it's this it's the you know we've we've talked a lot about sort of the potential symbiosis or lack thereof between how they work but i think you need frost's sort of ideas about storytelling and um and my and mythos building for it to have that to have that peculiar effect when Lynch kind of obscures it all, um, otherwise it's just you know you 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 know what that's like from seeing stuff like Inland Empire right where it's just it's it's purely arcane and you really really have to strain and dig and, and scrape to get something um, concrete concrete out of it. Not that I don't love Inland Empire, which I really really do, um, but obviously that what's going on with something like Twin Peaks is very different. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because I do feel like there is, I feel like there is a narrative that, and I'm totally, I totally use it as well, which is this idea that, that Frost can sort of handle straightforward storytelling and Lynch couldn't, or, or that Lynch wouldn't have something to contribute for a sort of 18-hour storyline. And I, But then you think back to things like Blue Velvet, which Lynch wrote on his own, and like, mm-hmm. is a very kind of clearly developed sort of narrative story. I mean, it, it you know, arguably it's very different than what Frost would do or has done, so it, it, I'm not saying they're the same or something, but um, I do think that there are parts of Lynch that can do narrative um but i think in this particular instance i think you're absolutely right simon that there is something there is that is a perfect description that i think lynch maybe participates with frost in coming up with a storyline that frost is then sort of filling in all of these details and these very clear kind of um moves towards explanation and then lynch comes in and does something different and i I wanted to bring this up last week as well because um when we were talking about how sort of frustrated everybody was with part uh 12 last week this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that I, I find it quite funny, um, maybe people's frustrations about stuff like that, because if we cast our minds back to all of the stuff that happened when Lynch was setting up the plan for this with Showtime, originally Showtime had agreed on nine episodes, according to the sort of 400-page um, like loose screenplay that they had turned in. Showtime had looked at that and said, that's enough writing for nine episodes. And then Lynch fought them and was able to double it to 18 episodes. And for me, I find it funny that it's like, I think people thought that Lynch went back and then wrote nine more hours worth <laughs> right. of material for that. Right. And it's, that is clearly not what happened. Like, and, and I sort of knew that. I knew that what Lynch wanted was the space and the freedom to to stretch what what him and Frost had wrote, to kind of fill things in, to to bend things and, and mutate them and add, you know, puking zombie kids in the interstices. Right. Like, I mean, th- this is not... I, it, it, it always struck me as funny that people were expecting there to be 18 episodes worth of like narrative material here, where it was clear to me that there was nine episodes worth of narrative material. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Like, I want there to be these scenes that go nowhere. And like, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Roth in the car making jokes about Mormon. It's like, that has nothing to do with anything. We don't really need that, but it's part of the fabric of the show. Mm-hmm. And I want it. I want every minute of it. Yeah. <laughs> and in the nine episode version, we don't get two minutes of green onions and exactly. sweeping the floor of the roadhouse. Yeah, we don't get partied at all. Probably, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. That's I, probably I, true. I, yeah. I, I, I would. There's. I would pay a significant amount of money to see the shooting script for part eight. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I actually, I'd be really fascinated, and I'm sure people will do this kind of work and this will come out at some point, but I feel like these questions about Frost and Lynch, it's difficult to answer them without knowing what Frost's role was on the set. Because I actually think that's where a lot of this kind of decision-making happens, and I'm not sure how involved Frost was on set. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, from the descriptions of how it was shot, it, it, it seems like... It was essentially shot all at once, and then Lynch went and made 18 different parts. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, I mean, it's easy for me to imagine there being a significant change in how those parts are put together. Um, Exactly. You know, you take the the game of throw between Sonny Jim and, and Dougie Cooper last week, which seems like one of the reasons that was placed there was because if not, they couldn't say starring Kyle McLaughlin. Um, Guys, I just realized, I just realized I f***ed up so bad by not calling last week's episode of this podcast Game of Throw. God damn it. Oh, yes. That would have been great. Well, see, if this were a Lynch movie, we could, you could loop it and go back and just do that. That's right. Oh my God, Simon, in the, in the Lynch version of this podcast, we're going to be stuck podcasting forever until we die. Um, but another sort of moment of potential sort of Lynch-Frost collusion that I, I keep thinking about and sort of the, the conflict between them is when Ray slips the ring on and then dies. And then we get this sequence where the ring disappears and goes to the lodge. And Ray also seems to manifest suddenly his body manifests in both the lodge and also seems to stay in the warehouse at the same time. And then we see what looks like Philip uh, grabbing... Uh, sorry, not Philip. Um, one arm man, Mike. Mike, thank you. No, but but yeah. so it's fascinating that you say Philip because he is actually credited. He's not credited as anything in this episode, probably for ambiguity's sake. But when he does appear, he is not credited as Mike. He's credited as Philip Gerard, right? Mm. Which I am convinced is a clue, and that that is the person who is acting as Philip Jeffries. Anyway, the point I was trying to make is that. There does seem to be, like, a hard logic. Maybe not hard logic, but there does seem to be, uh, like, a relational logic between the Lodge and other places that, you know, it, and how they and how they connect to this ring and, like, specific effects that the ring has. Like, there seems to be, like, a, a rather specific set of relationships uh, between these objects and these spaces that, that, that feels so close to, like, mathematical almost. But it's just, it's always just out of reach. Yeah. Right. Like, d- does wearing the ring at the moment you die mean that you are transported to the lodge? Super um, helpful, by the way. Super helpful. Great timing as, on getting transported to the lodge is right after. As, you yes, die. right. <laughs> but that seemed to be what happened with Laura. Um, uh, does that yeah. depend on you having some sort of previous um, kind of interplay with the lodge? I mean, one thing that I found confusing or interesting about ray and and mr c's conversation was um it was unclear to me if ray might have been some sort of lodge presence there um and when he said to to mr c i know who you are what was that supposed to mean and 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 also at the same time when when apparently philip jeffries or whoever ray thought was philip jeffries said to him that if he did this um he could get out and stay out but it, it wasn't clear. At first, I thought, well, that must mean jail. But it, I don't think it does mean jail. But I'm not sure what it 
means. Well, obviously what he meant by I know you are is you're Kyle MacLachlan, the star of stage and screen. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> what else could it be? Um, I, yeah, that whole, that whole sequence was quite mystifying for any number of reasons. Uh, I mean, in a good way. But like, yeah, I, uh, the, the, the particular line there where he says get out and stay out, the sense that I made out of that was something about the idea that Ray would no longer be being chased by Evil Coop. Like that Evil Coop was going to keep coming after him until unless Ray killed him, I guess. But again, I, I feel like so many of these explanations only make sense um, in these sort of like uh, compartmentalized spaces. I, I Again, I don't really feel like a lot of these explanations for anything make sense over every scenario in which they exist. I feel like the ring... The, the ring stuff is like, and I don't like this term, and I don't really think Lynch is doing this, but like there is a sense in which the ring stuff works as like almost trolling because I don't yeah. really think the ring ever ever made total sense. I mean, I think you, I, I've now seen people read the scenario at the end of uh, Fire Walk with Me where Laura puts on the ring in 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 completely contradictory ways, and and all of them make sense, but it's sort of the same here. And then the real question is like why Ray seems to be this sort of like guy who who understands things and seems to know things when he's talking to Evil Coop, but can't seem to tell. Big arm wrestling guy hey probably you're not going to beat evil coop in an arm wrestle so yeah. maybe don't do that yeah. like, can, i don't know can, can i not be put up for this bargain like right well <laughs> exactly. and also, i mean the odd like you just shot a guy in the stomach however two yeah. three times a, a bunch of creatures materialized out of thin air and pulled a specter of something out of him what makes you think that yeah. any earthly mode of of murder uh, is going to work on him? I mean, it, it, it's there's this odd hubris and, and arrogance mm-hmm. at work there. Um, what do you two think? Do you two think that Bob is still in Mister C? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. Neither do I. Well, there, <laughs> no there's been no idea. evidence to suggest it. I mean, he hasn't manifested in any way, but we did see him get stuffed in the Bob bubble. I don't know, man. Um, we we should be thinking about wrapping up in the nearness of time but we can't do that of course without talking about james speaking of trolling (laughs) speaking of trolling uh now kate and i we i i think we have to cop to our mistake because we were quite sure that we'd seen the last of james i know in his one scene and it's true that we saw his only dialogue so far in in that scene so, and I, I just want to clarify this. That's the same recording from Absolutely. the original Twin Peaks, right? Like it was identical. Yes. Um, but are the are the female voices the same? I'm not sure the women's voices are the same. I uh, I think the I, I think the James audio is, but I'm not sure the women are. Like I I don't know. I'd have to like do a side by side comparison, honestly. Right. But I, definitely I, his audio is the same. I thought it was, but that could be wish fulfillment because then that would mean that Laura Flynn Boyle was in The Return uh, in (laughs) some disembodied way, as I think she was actually in Sarah Palmer's house. I think there was Mm -hmm. a picture of um, of her along with what seems to be a plate of creamed corn, which is upsetting. Oh, that's right. We didn't talk about the Sarah Palmer scene at all, so we'll have to do that as well. But um, yeah, James, I mean, but the most interesting thing to me about that sequence are these cutaways to this actress who is just like obviously very visibly moved by what's going on, but I couldn't quite get a read on her relationship to the situation. Like she's wearing some sort of engagement or wedding ring, which she's like occasionally showing off to her friends. So it's not clear if is she engaged to James, is she engaged to someone else and she's just overwhelmed with emotion. 
Did, did you, I'm not sure, because I didn't remember this till somebody else pointed it out, but she she is the woman who, I think in episode yes. two, yeah. when James comes to the roadhouse and looks at Shelly, and there's a woman sitting with Shelly, and like they jo- they sort of giggle about oh. James staring at her because James has a crush on her. That's that woman. And she, um, asks, and so her, she's, yeah. she asks about, I mean, and in, in certainly in that scene, it appears that they are not having a relationship because Shelly no, has to explain that James has always been cool. In a, in a big middle finger to Twin Peaks fans everywhere. Um, and sensible TV watchers is, of all types. That line is never not going to be funny to me, James. Is James always is always cool. cool. <laughs> False. <laughs> <laughs> not correct. <laughs> Um, but I like I, I actually I thought that her I thought that the, the cutaway shots to her were really fascinating but first I will I have to go on the record and say um, I thought we weren't going to get any James but I will say that I was very pleased when James came back in this scenario so I don't know what percentage that puts me in if that's a small percentage or not but I was really thrilled when this song came on I, I have always loved that scene in um, I think it's episode two or at the end of episode one in season two anyway somewhere in there I've always loved that scene I love having this back I mean I, I for me this felt like one of those clear moments where we are we are sort of tipping the scales towards the show almost embracing it's a nostalgic view of itself almost well, like this is this yeah. yeah and it also I mean speaking about looping you know, he has as backup singers two brunettes roughly the same age as uh, Donnie and Maddie were, Donna and Maddie were at the time that he originally sang that. So it seems like, you know, James might be looping a little bit also. Um, I also love the idea that this is the only song he's ever written. And (laughs) just whenever he's wooing a woman, he whips this out. <laughs> um, and he always has uh, to find brunettes of that age. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the, 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 um, there, there's also on the on the character Renee, you know, they very conspicuously show a tattoo of numbers on her. And uh, which was to me, again, a symbol of how far I'll go down a Twin Peaks rabbit hole, because I was all like I was trying to add those numbers together and figure out what they mean. And is there some combination where those total one, one, nine. And, um, and then, uh, I think actually that that's just a tattoo that that actress has on her arm. <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with anything, but it that's took me amazing. a long time of, of trying to parse that out. Wait, before wait, I bothered to, How did you figure that out? Did you like go to look I, up? I de- like, I looked up her marks. online. Yeah. That's and I, I, yeah. So, so just next um, time start there. I know exactly. Right. It's, a, it's an Occam's Razor, Maybe razor the situation, thing right? And work up. Um, I the the thing I really liked about her uh, presence in that scene was, um, and and I think again, people reacted to that. Uh, to the cutaway shots to her strongly. I, like a couple of different people said things to me like, who is this woman and why are we supposed to care and why do we have spending all this time with this person that we have no idea who it is? And, you know, like I, I do get that reaction. That that makes some sense to me. I also think it's interesting that Lynch is just simply unconcerned with this idea that, that he can bring a, a very small, like a person who played a tiny part what, 12 episodes ago, 11 episodes ago back, and that he expects that we're all just going to get on board. I mean, I think that's sort of impressive, again, the trust that he extends to his audience around that kind of stuff. But there's that. The other thing I really liked about it, though, is I like that she goes through this sort of, like, a wide emotional array mm-hmm. of responses yeah. to James singing, because I think it, it, like, dramatizes what... It dramatizes the possible divisive reactions to that scene. And it points out to me that I think Lynch absolutely knows how people are going to react, right. which is that some people are going to love 
love it. And some people are going to completely roll their eyes and laugh out loud at it. And it's like, she does all of that. She goes from sort of embarrassment and like laughing at to then being very moved by it. And like, I, I was very moved by it, but I also am aware enough to know that it's a little funny. Mm. It's a little goofy. And this is again, Lynch pointing out that they don't need to, they don't need to oppose each other. Like all of those affects can exist together right. and that it's sort of great. And some people are going to cry because they're so angry. They get to yes. do this again. <laughs> I mean, so certainly the entire run has shown that Lynch and Frost are not afraid of making enormous demands on the audience. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 number of times when key plot points were only revealed in the credits um, yeah. is, is uh, you know, like, if you are not paying close attention to every second uh, of what is appearing on screen, you're likely to miss something that could end up being crucial, you know, three, four, eight, 12 episodes down the line. Right. On the other hand, if you yeah. pay strict attention, you'll see all the things that you think are important. And then it turns out very few of them are. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. So you're kind of screwed either way. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> As that tattoo showed us. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, we wanted to get to the Palmer scene, but I think maybe before that, just because it ties into what we were just saying, I wanted to add as well the uh, to just get in there, the Las Vegas Police Department scene where we have the return of the uh, Keystone Cop brothers there uh, doing their shtick, which again was a very weird scene where you have the woman, like the sounds of a woman screaming off screen and being tased and then just sort of not even noticing, which was actually kind of upsetting. Uh, and then we have maybe the trolliest joke of the jokes here which is one of the brothers getting the fingerprint report back that like perfectly tells them the truth like it tells them the exact yes. truth which is that there is evil coop there is a missing fbi agent there is x y and z and that this is all perfectly accurate and of course they laugh and roll it up and throw it away and i i thought that yes that was sort of a funny joke in the face of an audience that is so desperate for there to be like a resolution to this stuff but the other thing i really liked about it is that it, it tied into some of these things that i think have been present in the show since its beginning which is i mean not a, not a distrust of uh, like sort of um, technological rationality, sort of empirical moves. It, it's not a, a distrust of them so much as it as it is an interesting kind of constantly pointing out that they are not the only way to get to a solution to a problem. Because here it's like that scene dramatizes the idea that there are systems that could tell people what's wrong. Like the truth is there, it's available. And what hinders it is attitudes Human and beliefs on, from right. the part of these guys, right? It's like that they just, they look at it and they're like, that can't possibly be right. And it goes away. And and for me, that's like almost the flip side of Coop solving, solving things through dreams, like through emotional logic. It's like those things both exist in a similar register, but are almost opposite. It. Um, yeah, there, there does seem to be, and and this is something that I associate with Mark Frost, just because I'm. It, it doesn't. I don't feel like David Lynch pays as close attention to what the audience might be thinking or feeling. But yeah. there's been an almost uncanny ability to play with and highlight and tease out, and in some cases troll audiences' expectations. Um, you know that it almost felt as if. Uh, uh, somehow from a year ago when this was filmed, they were aware that the audience now for however many episodes has been saying, that's going to be what brings everything together. They're going to run the goddamn prints and then it's all going to pull together. And, um, you know, which is exactly the reaction that everyone was having. It's sort of incredible that, that someone was able to foresee that and just basically, yeah. you know, literally crumple that up and throw it in our face. Um, I, I, my, my fantasy version of what happens now is that 
Bushnell decides that he can't trust the LVPD. And so they contact the FBI uh, about the whole corruption within the police department. And somehow that brings in Cole, because that is that's something that I think we have not been thinking of um, or assuming was coming. So it'd be very satisfying on some level just for the resolution there to come out of left field. Mm hmm. I'm going to be very, very curious once this is over to hear from Frost and and Lynch and whoever else wants to talk about the process, um, yes. about about the process and, and to the extent that any of them are going to want to discuss specifics. I mean, I guess that will remain to be seen. Um, I guess, yeah. Lastly, since we haven't discussed it, I mean, I just, I don't have that much to say about the Sarah Palmer scene exactly, except to say that the way that like the vast majority of the time that we spent time with Sarah Palmer, it's from that same angle in her living room of her watching television. Um, is extremely depressing. It, oh, that that scene is hard with her. But yeah, but sorry, go ahead, Seth. Well, it's another scene that also appears to be out of time because uh, it seems that this takes place before last week's episode because she's not drinking Smirnoff uh, and she runs out of vodka. And last week she bought three brand new yeah. bottles of Smirnoff. Oh, that's um, right. Unless she's just really pile driving, which yes, is also possible. Right. Which it could be. <laughs> um, there, there's something interesting that I, uh, that I saw on Reddit today, which is that if you sync up that scene with, um, with the woodsman's chant in episode eight, the loops there for the first several times through sync up almost perfectly. Um, and when the woodsman says drink forth, then she drinks. Um, and then it sort of falls out of sync, which is something that seems to me could be totally accidental, also possibly could be very intentional, um, but made me wonder again if, if Sarah Palmer, is, if there's some telegraphing that she might be the, the fricket girl um, from New Mexico. Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen that that, that uh, post. I think I saw it as well. And like, I, I find that that stuff is all interesting. I mean, I think... I don't know. My my again. I was wrong about the James bet, but I but I will put my money down now and say that I I don't think we're gonna ever really get much explanation about how part eight links up to everything else. My guess is that that's sort of simply gonna be left open, um, but but we'll see. I I will be very interested to be proven wrong. Yeah. So we'll see how it's, that goes. Um, it's been another yeah. week and another week that my Monica Bellucci is Donna theory has not been disproven. I know. Not panned out. Um, I just wanted to add one more thing about the Palmer scene, and then we can we can uh, expand out. But the the Palmer scene, the thing that I found really fascinating about it, um, of course, is this television looping thing, which lots of people have commented on already. But the thing that I really find fascinating about the way that Lynch sets that up with the TV looping is, I think it plays into something that's happening throughout his whole approach to the return, which is the way that Lynch manages to find, I don't know, ways to use kind of digital technology. And, and sort of make them glitch and make them go wrong in ways that don't ever happen in reality. It's like like the digital glitches are always just sort of off here. I mean, digital television, like whether that's supposed to be a DVD or like um, streaming or a satellite or something that she's watching, doesn't the glitches don't happen like that. Television doesn't loop like a record. I mean, that's a very it's a very odd thing that he's doing there. And he does versions of it throughout, right? I mean, this idea when um, Tammy walks up to Gordon Cole's hallway uh, hotel door and the handle just sort of glitches in a very odd way. It's like Lynch is always just sort of playing with that edge of, of what we expect, where we expect things to go wrong. And then he just finds a way to make them even more weirdly go wrong. And it, I don't know, again, I just wanted to say that because I think it's genius. I think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's also the, the, the glitch that occurs there, the electric 
glitch sounds as if it is coming from a different source than television. Mm, than the TV. Yeah, you're right. And it, it's another example from this episode in which I'm not sure if that is occurring in the Palmer household, if that's occurring in that universe, um, if that's occurring in another universe and causing that within the Palmer household. Uh, um, it, but it was it was a ve- it was a weird uh, sort of disjointed effect that heightened the sense of kind of dis- at least for me it heightened the sense of discomfort um, in that in that scene. Absolutely, and also just like the sense that like how can this how a is this woman still living in this house Ugh, and like how God. has it's like she walks out of that room and I actually thought for a second I was like dear God she's going to kill herself like I it right. just is such an unbearable scene. Well, and oh, you have the 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 owl mirror or you know the three mirrors behind her that look like a giant owl staring down at her. Um, uh, I mean that's an example of someone who total has appeared in under ten minutes of of the return. Talk about a powerful effect um Mm -hmm. you know if i had to describe the 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 return those scenes are some of the first ones that i would describe that scene but especially from last week both of those scenes um were uh literally like the stuff of nightmares um and and whatever you know i'm i'm sort of scared to find out what's going on with with sarah palmer Mm mm-hmm and with that pleasant note, um, <laughs> does anyone have any 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 final final thoughts before we wrap up? Do you two think that that Dale Cooper, as we knew him, um, plus twenty seven years, is going to appear in the return? I think maybe in a very small percentage. I think in a very small way we're going to get him back, but it's it's never going to be like more than. Than only partially. I think. I think the majority of New Cooper is here to stay. Right. What, and and Simon, do what do you think? I'm inclined to agree. I think if we, to the extent that we are going to get Cooper back, and we have to remember that you know there is no Dougie anymore, so technically we are right. Cooper. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, that I I think it will be extremely limited. It'll be extremely compromised and. Um, God, I'm starting to think about how this can end, and I'm just like, uh, I, I, I am, <laughs> I don't know, man. I just don't. Yeah. Know. <laughs> um, are you are you hoping for more complete Dougie uh, reboot? Seth? No. I, in fact, I've been, I found Dougie to be very satisfying um, yeah. in an extremely unsatisfying way. But um, uh, I've I found it really fascinating to watch what I don't think is my imagination. And that's like slight bits of Dale Cooper's consciousness emerge um, yeah. as he progresses through uh, whatever his timeline happens to be. Um, but he seems to be reacting to his environment uh, um, and even responding to words differently than he did. Um, one thing that confuses me about him is the whole Ike the Spike thing, um, because that seemed like that, that seem to signal that um, when he is confronted with stressful situations, uh, big chunks of him will suddenly emerge. But at this yeah. point, that seems like a one-off now. And then he'll take big chunks out of other people. Yes, right, right. right. <laughs> Rip his hand off. Um, it's true. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll see. We have what five 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 hours left. left? Five oh, left. Man. Four, Four weeks. weeks. Uh, I don't like that. That's not that's not a good note to end on. No. I, I mean, 
I'll be really sorry to see it go, but I also just feel like, I mean, there's, it's so thrilling to experience this as it happens. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I sort of feel like I'm glimpsing the top of a roller coaster. Um, and I know it's going to be over in a relative blink of an eye, but yeah. I'm still I mean, very Seth, excited. One day your kids are going to ask you, <laughs> where what were was, you? What, no, they'll, they'll ask you, <laughs> what was Twin Peaks? What was television? What was society? Yes, right, right. <laughs> right. And then somewhere in there, in in the bunker, you can tell them about Twin Peaks, and you can right exactly. reenact this, uh, this entire season. That's, that's I know we're way over, but just one last sentence I want to get in, sure. which is it's incredible how prescient this feels politically, given yeah. that it was recorded before Trump was elected president. It's true. I don't know. I mean, I think they are. They are plugged in in a very interesting way. Um, yeah. No, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, I think, uh, again, just, yeah. I, well, that, we'll have to save that for another yes, time. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. We've talked about it a little bit yeah, before, we, but you're absolutely right. Well, yeah. yeah, and I have my own thoughts and feelings about, like, is the Trump era really so different? Blah, blah, blah. But don't yeah. get me started on that, so. Because we'll yeah. be here all goddamn day. Anyway, <laughs> Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where yeah. can folks find you online? Uh, probably the easiest way is Twitter, um, and it's just Seth Manukin, S-E-T-H-M-N-O-O-K-I-N. Uh, um, yeah, and I would love to talk to anyone and everyone about Twin Peaks, so feel free <laughs> he really to reach would. me there. He's not lying. <laughs> I, I, I really um. would. I begged these two to let me on. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we were very, very happy to be asked. Very happy. Yeah. Um, so, Seth, do you have any, like, uh, I don't know, projects or anything that you want to take a chance to uh, promote here? Uh, well, the thing I'm working on right now, interestingly, is a book about aging, um, uh, but I'm woefully behind on that. So it'll, it'll be, uh, it'll be a while before that comes out. If there are any aspiring science writers out there, I do run a graduate program in science journalism, uh, at MIT. So you can get in touch with me about that too. Fantastic. Uh, as I mentioned before, do feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes. Big help. Uh, you can find Kate on Twitter at cinnamon, that's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T, You can find me at Hollow Minds, spelled like it sounds. Thank you all so much. We will be back in roughly a week's time.